Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is power, it is life. It grows us, it increases our faith. And we love you for not leaving us alone to figure it out on our own. You revealed yourself. You, you, you've written down so that we can know what you've done in the past. God, and you've given us promises for the future that we can hold on to because the promises you gave in the past you fulfilled. We know the promises you've given us for now and our future. You will be good too. I pray that you would save sinners as we study your word. I pray you would enlighten hearts and minds as we study your word. I pray that you would build us up in our faith as we study your word. Jesus, may there be strong men and women in Christ leaving this place as a result of your word because, Lord Jesus, our world needs your gospel. It needs your influence. It needs your people to live as you've called us to live. Uh, so be with us this morning. Give me grace, Father, to execute and to communicate your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And every Christian said, Amen. Amen. Exodus is a story of God's deliverance. God never leaves his people alone, even when God's people feel. Have you ever been praying a prayer and you felt like your prayer just hit the ceiling and bounced back into your face mocking you? You just felt far from God and alone, and you felt like he wasn't there and he wasn't listening God's people have felt like that many times throughout history. And we're going to read about some dark times for the Hebrew people here in chapter 1 this morning. But in the darkest times, the book of Exodus is about how God isn't absent. He's always there. Even when it doesn't seem like he's there, he's behind the scenes working everything out. And there's always a purpose for our pain and a purpose for our hardships. And God always comes through and delivers his people in the end. This is going to be a great story. But as great of a story as this is, it's not a story that is by itself. It is part of a larger story of redemption that God is working out in the world, which is why many of your Bibles will begin, now these are the names. Now the ESV translation uh, omits that word that's mostly translated now, but a better translation for that word would be and. And these are the names. Well, Brent, why is that not in our Bible? If it's in the Hebrew text, why is it not translated in the English the way it's supposed to be? Uh, how many of you remember seventh grade English? All right. There's a couple words you're never supposed to start a sentence with. All right, just give me a couple. What's one? And, well, that's, that's the one we're talking about. But that's another one. Or there's some words you just don't start sentences with in English, which is why the word is omitted. We don't start sentences with the word and, and it doesn't affect the context of what's being said. So some English commentators just leave it out or they'll translate it as now. But it's actually important to understand that the, that word is there because it's a continuation word. Exodus is not a standalone book written in a standalone time for a standalone purpose. It's part of a larger story. In fact, the first five books of the Bible are a, yes, it's at a certain time. It's a historical narrative. These things happened. These things were written down by someone who was there and experienced these things happening, saw these things occurring, the first five books of the Old Testament is known to the Hebrews as the Torah or the law. Mostly it's referred to by those of us on this side of Christ as the Pentateuch, which is a Greek word that just means five books. And it is the beginning epic of, of God's people and God's purpose in the world that is then expanded in Christ Jesus to 
the church, God's people today, for us today and for our future until the return of Christ. To understand Exodus quickly, we need to understand Genesis. And here's where I'm going to try to save some time. Because I spent way too much time in the first 11 chapters of Genesis last service. But just know this about the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Every philosophical question that have caused men to beat their heads against desks, have, have caused men to spill gallons of ink upon pages and books written, all, who are we? Where do we come from? All all these great philosophical questions are all answered. Why why do some of us look different? Where do language? Why are people all over the world if there was one? All these questions are answered in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Chapters 12 through chapters 50 of Genesis begin in one line of thinking about one man and some promises God makes to this one man and how God begins to fulfill those promises to one man. God chooses a man named Abram. And he tells Abram, Abram is a pagan. He's part of a pagan family. They're Chaldean. God tells this man Abram to leave his Chaldean roots, leave his Father's house, if you know anything about the Chaldeans from later on in the Old Testament, they're they're a tribe of witchcraft. They're seers and sorcerers. When kings don't know answers and they need runes or visions or dreams, they call Chaldeans in to to throw bones and do all the stuff that that those kind of, of pagan peoples do. God tells Abram, leave this people because through you, he tells them, start walking. Everyone's like, where am I going? You don't need to know. I'll let you know when you get there. How would you like to get in your car not knowing where you're going? This is what God asks Abram to do. And Abram, in faith, just says, okay, okay, I'll do what you say. He gets to a land called Canaan. And God says to him, out of you. Now, again, Abram is like in his 80s at this time. And he says, out of you, I'm going to build a people. And this people is going to become a nation. And we're not going to go through all the verses, but just chapters 12 of Genesis, chapters 15 of Genesis, and chapter 17 of Genesis are incredibly important. And everything I'm saying is in those chapters. Out of you, I'm going I'm to give you a son, and that son is going to become a people, and that people is going to be a nation, and out of that nation, all other nations are going to come out of, and other kings of those nations are going to come out of, of you, and all nations are going to be blessed. Not only am I going to make you a great nation, look up at the sky, Abram, which, by the way, I'm going to change your name to Abraham right now, because look at the sky, look at all the stars. Your descendants are going to outnumber all the stars in the skies that you could possibly Count, I'm going to do this with you, old man. To which Abram's wife laughs because she, you, just, you can't believe that. They're past child bearing years. And at one point, Abram even tries to take into his own hands by taking Sarah's handmaiden and having a son through her. And God says, nope, that's not the way I'm going to do it. This isn't your work. This is my work. And this is my plan. And this is my unconditional covenant with you. Even though you're a bonehead trying to do it in your own strength, I'm not going to hold it against you. But we're going to do this my way. And it's not going to be through Hagar, and Ishmael's not the promise. It's going to be through your wife, Sarah, and it's going to be Isaac, and it's going to happen and be a nation and be a people, and that people that I am promising you, it's going to become a nation, which will become more nations, which all nations are going to be blessed through. I promise you, a people, and not only a people, but I'm going to also give you a land. This land of Canaan you're looking at, I'm going to give it to your descendants. There's three big promises God makes in Genesis that lead us up to this point. The first promise is there's going to be a Savior. Right at the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, God looks at the serpent and says, Listen, 
Uh, you think you've done something great by deceiving Adam and Eve and, and, and caused them to uh, not trust me and what I'm doing in this creation that I have created for myself, for my pleasure and for joy in my creation. You think you've thwarted my plans, but you haven't thwarted my plans. Remember, it was God who made the first sacrifice foreshadowing the cross of Christ and his son who is going to be the seed that bruises the head of the serpent. So there's a messianic promise in chapter 3. There's a promise of a people through Abram who doesn't have that son of promise till they are, I think Sarah was 90, was she 98 or 99? I don't remember now. When she finally had that son of promise. And then a third covenant God makes with Abram in Genesis is this people is going to become a great people and I'm going to give you this land that you're standing on as he leaves his father's home. God takes him to Canaan. This is the land that I'm going to give to you. Three big ideas in Genesis you need to understand as we move now into Exodus Verse 1, these are the names. Did you know the Hebrew people called this the book of names? Why are names so important? Because God said, I'm going to build a people. And he starts with Abram in chapter 12. And he moves to Isaac. And then he moves to Isaac's son, Jacob who has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. When we get to Exodus chapter 1, these names are important because they represent the promise of God that God is already fulfilling in their midst. We didn't start calling it Exodus till almost a fourth century after Christ when Jerome translated the Hebrew Bible into Latin. That's where we, the name Exodus comes from, representing the great work God does in this book. But the Hebrews knew it as names because these names are important. These names are followed throughout the entire Old Testament, leading up to the most important person to come from this bloodline, Christ himself of the house of David, fulfilling all the messianic. These names are important. It's why they're recorded. It's why the genealogies are here. Exodus begins, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Verses 2 through 4, there was Reuben and Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All right? Now, all the Hebrews reading those few verses there, the first thing they're going to say is, that's only 11. Thought there were 12 tribes, which is why Moses, who's writing this, continues. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Now, underline that word, descendants. And then we see the 12th son of Jacob. Joseph was already in Egypt. How did God's people even get to Egypt in the first place for these horrible things we're about to read to happen? Remember, Joseph was the favorite son of Jacob. The brothers were jealous. They sold him to some traders who took him to Egypt, who sold him to a man named Potiphar, where he worked as a servant in Potiphar's house until he was falsely accused. Don't you just hate the way life works sometimes? It's just not fair. I I don't know why I'm talking about the last kingdom again, but you watch it, you're just like, Uhtred, stop trusting Alfred, man. You keep doing good stuff, and they keep blaming you for dumb stuff. It's just the way life works sometimes. So Potiphar's wife's a piece of work, lies on Joseph, who's doing everything right. And Joseph is thrown in prison in a fort for 13 years. He's either a slave or a prisoner. Now, how many of you would say, ooh, Lord, your will be done in my life? Because <laughs> sometimes that's what you're asking for. Joseph thought his life was over. But God's like, this pain has purpose. Just trust me. Have faith. I'm good. I'm doing something. Because those 13 years led to one instance where the most powerful man in the world at the time has a dream and none of his people can tell him what it means. And so God brings this, this 
Hebrew out of prison and puts him before this nobody from nowhere puts him before the most powerful man on the planet and gives him the grace to interpret the dream. And the Pharaoh looks down at Joseph and says, nobody should be running my kingdom but you and makes him the prime minister of all of Egypt. It's pretty awesome. Joseph, hated by his brother, is the second most powerful person in the Egyptian empire. God knows what he's doing, even if we don't think he knows what he's doing. Amen? Because famine was coming. You know, Egypt wouldn't have even survived if God had not sent Joseph through the sin of his brothers, through the sin of his brother. Joseph says in chapter 50, what you meant for evil, his brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Not only does Joseph save the empire of Egypt by God's grace, but he saves his family, Jacob, his father, and his 11 brothers and their wives and their children. The descendants of Jacob were about 70, but with the wives and servants and, and adopted people into the, the There's probably a couple hundred people who moved to Egypt and were saved from death. Why did they need to be saved from death? Because God made a promise to their great-grandfather, Abram, I'm going to make a people out of you. They're not going to die of famine. I'm going to make a way where there is no way because that's what God does. Are you on a crooked path right now? By God's grace in Christ Jesus, he makes crooked paths straight. He is good. Hold on to him. Believe. He's working things out behind the scenes as he always does. These names are important. They show God is good to keep his promises. He brings Joseph to Egypt. So Joseph brings Jacob and his people to Egypt so they can continue to grow and flourish. Look at verse 6. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Now, in your Bibles, look at Genesis chapter 50, verses 24 through 25. I just want you to see the faith of Joseph before we move any further. They're all in Egypt now. Joseph's in charge. Good things are happening. But Joseph remembers the promise of God. Not just the promise, the covenant doesn't matter what we do. God says, this is what I'm going to do. Now, there are some unconditional covenants. When we get to the Mosaic uh, law given at Sinai, that's a, that's a conditional. Or, uh, yeah, that's a, uh, a, con- yeah, a conditional covenant. God says, I will do this, and you do this. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do this, you're going to live in a curse. That's a conditional covenant. What he said about a people and a land is unconditional. God's going to do it regardless of what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob do. Joseph, in chapter 50, verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore. God made a promise to great-grandpa. He made a promise that he's going to be good to his promise. This is what Joseph knew. So verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. When God fulfills his prize, well, I can already see he's making us a people. We're going to become a nation. So when he gives us the land, he promised, get my bones out of here. I don't want to be buried in this land. I want to be buried in the promise that God has given. So when it happens, Joseph was certain As he faced death, the promise of God was good. It was true. Get my bones out of here. And Joseph dies, and all his brothers, and all that generation. Verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied, and they grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. I'm only going to say this about a thousand more times in the next 30 minutes God is good. He keeps his word. Why have people been carrying this book around for thousands of This was written 3,500 years ago. Why are we still studying it? Why are we still reading it? Because God is good. He keeps his promises. He kept the promises he made 
to his Old Testament people. He's keeping the promises he makes to us in Christ. All spiritual blessings belong to us. Abundant life now as well as eternal joy in his presence forever. Verse 8. God's people are flourishing and blessed and so everybody's happy. People love seeing God's people blessed. Isn't that cute? Aren't you special? No, God's blessing on his people strikes fear in the hearts of those who are not his people. And know today God has a people still in Christ, his church, a gathered people, Jew and Gentile alike in Christ. Now one new humanity, one new people. Ephesians. Axes and barbecue. Come on, guys. Learn about that new humanity in Christ Jesus. And there is also a people that does not belong to God on planet Earth still. You can call them pagans. You can call them unbelievers. Their sins are not covered in the blood of Christ. They have not trusted in faith the work that God has done on their behalf. They will die in their sins. They will be judged according. But the new humanity in Christ... Christ was judged for our sins, so there is no further punishment necessary. There is just joy in Christ for us. And guess what? Unbelievers, they didn't like it back then that God's favor was on the Jews. They don't like it now that God's favor is on his church. A lot of people are afraid of the church of Jesus Christ, especially today. Because in Christ, stuff that's happening out there is not happening in the church. People are scratching their head going, how are they they still growing? This this irrelevant, this old school, this stuff from way back. How are they still growing? Because God is good. (laughs) How are they getting along with one another? They should be fighting one another. Not in Christ. There's peace in Christ among all brothers and sisters. Among all tribes, nations, and tongues in Christ, there is unity. Unity the world can't have, can't possess, can't figure out. In Christ is made possible. Amen? Is it not good to be part of the family of God? I'm I'm having fun. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. Now, this doesn't mean he'd never heard of Joseph. That word know is an intimate knowledge of a person, a a friendship, closeness, a David and Jonathan. Even the same word is used for Adam and Eve. They they knew each other. There was an intimacy. Isn't it easier to judge another person when you don't know them? Nobody agrees with that? Let me give you an example. (laughs) When I was a young man, off to college, on my own, living my best life now, (laughs) if I wanted to stay up to 4 o'clock in the morning playing Zelda, (laughs) nobody could say no to me. (laughs) Best life now. If I wanted to put my drink on the... I didn't have a table. It was a box, but (laughs) if I had a table, I wouldn't use a coaster because I didn't have to. Best life now. I can remember walking, and it wasn't a Target. I keep saying Target. It was a Walmart because that's all we had in in Cleveland. So I remember walking through Walmart, and I remember seeing this, and I don't know if she was a single mom or just the husband wasn't there, but this poor mother with this young kid, and this kid is, it's just tantrum city. And in my mind, I'm not thinking, oh, he probably missed a nap. <laughs> I remember just so judgmental. I remember walking by that lady going, ugh, what a terrible mother. I would never let my kid act like that. I'm going to be such a better parent. 
And by God's grace, I met a beautiful woman, fell in love, got married, and had James David. And I'll never forget how, oh, how the tables have turned. I remember one day just James David was done. And in my mind, there was a thousand reasons. He missed a nap. He's hungry. We've been here a long time, right? I know why he's, he's having a complete and total meltdown. And as his father, I'm trying to calm him down. But at the core, it's when I saw that crusty little college student walk by going, Ugh. And I was like, stop. You don't know me. <laughs> Let me tell you all the reasons this is happening. <laughs> Judge me. Right? <laughs> it's easy to judge people we don't know. But when you know somebody, there's, there's more grace in the race. When it says that a new king came that didn't know Joseph, he didn't have an intimate friendship, knowledge, appreciation for what Joseph had done for his nation. And he said, verse 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Don't you know that all great decisions that men and women make come from fear? Do you know what fear is? Fear is when you put faith in the enemy instead of in a God who is good and working all things out according to his will. Whatever darkness is in your life, whatever hardships you are walking through, don't put your faith in the hardships. Put your faith in God. God is good. He's got a purpose for the pain. And the purpose is not to harm or to destroy. The purpose is to build up. The purpose is to multiply. The purpose is fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. Pharaoh doesn't know God. So he acts on his fear. These people, he's looking out and he sees nothing but foreigners in his kingdom and they're just growing and spreading. He's like, this is a virus. They didn't know about viruses. But we've got to do something. They're, they're, become, they're multiplying. They're, they're, the, they're going to fight against us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with him, with them, he says, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So in the next 22 minutes, we're going to see three ideas that come into the mind of Pharaoh on how to deal with this fruitful people that God is blessing within his empire. We see the first in verses 11 through 14. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses, but they were more, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." Idea number one Pharaoh has to solve this foreign problem in his kingdom, make them slaves, enslave them, make their lives hard, bring hardships in. Listen, people of God, this should not surprise us, this attitude from unbelievers who don't understand God, that he's good, his blessings, this should not surprise us. We've read human history. Look, uh, to put up 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. First service didn't get this. Beloved, listen to me, Christian men and women living in 2022. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is This is common in the hearts of unbelievers and in hearts still lost 
to evil, evil desire. They can only think of preserving themselves in greed and power and wealth to take from others for themselves. This is, this is common. Mankind, sin, stuff. We're going to talk a lot over the next 28 weeks about a couple big ideas. We're going to talk a lot about God. We're going to talk a lot about slavery. And we're going to talk a lot about freedom that God brings his people from the evil of men. Not only the evil of men, but the evil of Satan that is behind all the act. He is Ephesians, guys, come on. He is the prince, the power of this. All the sons of disobedience are acting under the influence of Satan himself. Never forget you have an enemy, and that enemy uses people the same way that God uses his people in the world. This should not surprise us. And I want you to see in the middle of Pharaoh putting the thumb of Egypt on the backs of God's people, they still flourish. One of the reasons I told you I don't remember if it was last week or a couple weeks. We live in exciting, exciting times right now. We don't have to be afraid of anything. I tell my kids all the time, whatever we're talking about, I'm like, I ain't scared of nothing. We don't have to be scared as God's people. Tertullian, an early church father, said in some of the worst moments of the lives of the Christian church, Diocles, Domitian, I mean, they, Nero, these are murderers. They wanted to wipe out Christians from the face of the earth. Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. God's people have always flourished in persecution. God's people have always flourished when the unrighteous and evil come against them. In countries right now, did you know the last hundred years there have been more Christian martyrs than in the first 1900 years of the Christian church? And for all you young people... For all you KSU students, KSU, KS, yeah, that's all right, KSU. <laughs> right? Don't think communist, socialism, communist, Marxism, don't think that stuff is good. That stuff is bondage. That stuff is slavery. Christians are being murdered today. And you know what's happening? The church is growing in those communist countries. God's people always flourish. They've always flourished. That's why whatever happens in the next five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years, ain't scared of nothing. You know why? God is good. His people flourish. You know what happened with the Egyptians? As they put their thumb down, what happened to them? Dread took over them because the harder they put their thumb down, the more God's people grew and flourished. The more love they had for one another, the more joy they had in their lives as they followed God. Verse 15, new plan, slavery is not working. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua. Now, we're talking about a large group of people already, so these aren't the only two midwives around. There were no hospitals in the ancient world. When a woman was ready to have a baby, midwives would come and they would help and they would wash and clean and, and be there as a support to make sure that baby was, was born as properly and as healthy as a baby can be born. These two women are mentioned by name, and these are Hebrew names of women who are in charge of all of the midwives for Israel in Egypt. Verse 16, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, ladies, aren't you glad we don't live in ancient times anymore? Now you get to take a bath while you give birth. That's gross. <laughs> Second big idea in the mind of Pharaoh. When you see them on the birth stool, when you're there and they give birth, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Second big idea Pharaoh has, a silent genocide. The killing of an entire group. Why just the son? Why not daughters as well if he wants to get rid of this people group? There's a couple reasons. Number one, sons grow up to be soldiers. 
in the ancient world, sons were the first line of defense a family had against thieves, against warlords. It was sons that would go off to war for, for their family, for their nation. Sons became soldiers. Let's get rid of their strength. We'll cut off the sons so they're not so much a threat. Number two, daughters could easily be assimilated into Egyptian culture through marriage. The children they had with their Egyptian husbands would grow up speaking Egyptian language in Egyptian culture, have Egyptian names. They would know nothing but Egyptian. So, so uh, women weren't as big of a threat, but actually were a help to the Egyptian people by bearing Egyptian husbands because family lines ran through the male patriarchal system. Now, there's also something you need to understand that is not as physical, but is spiritual. Because what is Satan ultimately trying to do? God has made a promise of a Savior who's going to come through a people that he is creating, that who he's going to give a land to. What does Satan want to do through Pharaoh in this genocide, this, this killing of the male bloodlines? He wants to stop the seed from coming that is going to save his people from their sin, from the work of Satan himself. Kill the bloodline. No savior can come. But God will preserve his people. Now watch this, ladies. I need you to listen well. Because we're going to celebrate strong women of God right here. In fact, after next week, we're going to see this king, the, strong, the most influential man on the face of the planet, his Plans are thwarted by five different women, two of whom we're going to meet today. Listen, here's what we need, Christian women. We need you to be strong and courageous. We don't want weak women. We want strong women. Women like J.L. who will pin a man to the ground with a tin peg. Pow! It's the kind of women we want at four points. Amen? Praise God, he gave me a strong woman. Because we'd be out of ministry a long time ago. <laughs> Verse 17 through 19, let's read it and we'll go back. But underline some things as we, as we move. But the midwives feared God, underline that, and did not do, underline it, as the king of Egypt commanded them, underline it, king commands, but they don't fear man, they fear God, so they do not do what the king commands them to do. So the king, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like, because we fear God, is that what they said? Nope. They said, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> Again, what do we want? Strong. What, what are God's women supposed to be like? Oh, time to have a baby. Let's go wash some clothes. Right? I love it. They're not like your women, Pharaoh, who are weak and need a lot of help. couple big ideas here. couple big ideas here. Come on. Listen, because I get these questions all the time. We can learn a lot right here from God's Word. Is there ever a time when a leader or a government or a nation makes laws and makes commands that Christians should disobey? The answer is yes. There is a time to look the king in the face and not do what he commands, and it is godly when it is done in faith. Faith that doesn't come from, right, a fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The wisest man on earth before Christ said that. The fear of man is a snare, we're told in the New Testament. 
We are not to fear men. We are to fear God. And so when man says, do this, we can say, not going to do it. Because I fear God way more than I fear you. Can you imagine not doing what the king commands and being called in? Come on, you've seen enough movies to see how this goes. To know that your head, within five seconds of how you answer the king, within five seconds your head could be off your shoulders. Or you could have a noose tied around your neck. Imagine that moment, the tensity of that moment, not knowing, and the king going, why didn't you do what I commanded? So do you know what they say? They lied. Brent, you can't lie and be a Christian. Okay, so let's talk for a moment. Do you guys remember several years ago, it was in our vision series, and I brought up all those commentaries. Remember I had that box? We were starting the book of Matthew. And I had like 15 commentaries that we were using to study Matthew. Because you can't just read one commentary. I don't know if you know this or not. But don't you, if you're a Baptist and you only read Baptist stuff, you're not going to have a full orb. You're going to have a very truncated understanding of God's word. If you're a Pentecostal and you read only Pentecostal stuff, if you're a Wesleyan and you read only, you got to read them all. We read Catholic theologians. We read Reformers. We read them all so we can get a good synthesis of what God is saying. And if, if you remember when I stacked up those commentaries, I was like, this one's good, and, and this one is good here, and now this one I call, and, and there were two in, in particular, the NIC. NT, the New International Commentary on the New Testament, and the NAC, the New American Commentary. They're not bad commentaries, but there was a way I described them, and the way I described them is, now these are your Baptist khaki commentaries. They're not going to say anything controversial, because what, what do I mean by that? They're not going to say anything controversial. If the Bible has some teeth, they're going to try to rub the teeth off, round the corner so nobody hits their head and bleeds. Keep it in the middle. Don't offend anybody. Listen to me, listen. The Bible is offensive. Okay? The gospel is offensive. Stop trying to take the teeth out of what the scripture says. Because there is a time to defy authority. Now, we should live under authority. We should do all the things the Bible But there is a time to defy. We know that from scripture. What does Rahab do when the spies come into Israel, when the spies come into Jericho and the leaders find out there's some, there's some of God's people in here. God's given them this land. We can lose everything. We've got to find those spies and we've got to kill them. What is Rahab? A prostitute. What does she do? She hides the spies and when they come knock on her door, what does she do? She lies. Oh, I don't, I've not seen them. I don't know where they are. They're under the bed going, oh my God. Right? God's purposes are always greater than any other purpose. And we get to be part of it. You know what happens to Rahab? She is commended in the book of Hebrews for her faith. She chose God, his purpose, and his plan over the purpose and plan of her own people. And she was celebrated for it. Come on, tent peg women. She was celebrated. Acts chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John are arrested. What do the leaders tell them? Stop speaking in the name of Jesus. It was a command. We are going to throw you back in jail if you don't knock it off. And what did they say? Do what you have to do. But we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. There is a time to do things. Even God says not to do, right? God says don't lie. Why does he say that? Because in his character, he always tells the truth. But Rahab celebrated these women. Look what, look what so God, verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives. Now here's what the Baptists tried. Do they, do they say, well... They really didn't lie. That was probably the truth. They tried to do what Pharaoh commanded. That's not what it says. Go back to verse 17. They feared God. They did not do 
And then they covered their tracks. And what did God do as a result? God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. That word means households. It's not just their own personal families grew, but the households of Israel grew through the faithfulness of these midwives who rejected the command of the king and feared God instead. If that doesn't give you goosebumps, I can't help you. Listen, here's the kind of men and women we need. Here's the kind of men and women we should have in the kingdom of God. Men like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if you've ever heard his name. He was a famous German theologian and pastor. If you've never read Life Together, man, you need to read it. If you've never read The Cost of Discipleship, you need to read his letters from prison, which he never thought were going to be published. He was writing personal letters, but they ended up getting published. It's called Letters from Prison. To see inside the heart of a man who loves Jesus, it's, it's, it's amazing stuff. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is during World War II. He's an important person in German society. And you know what happens? He gets frustrated with the church because the church is allowing Hitler to openly and publicly do evil. Hitler killed 11 million people in genocide. I'm not talking about the soldiers in war. I'm talking about people that they went and drug out of their homes confiscated all their wealth, confiscated their business, drug them out, put them on trains, sent them off, took their clothes, starved them. You've seen the pictures. Six million Jews, five million other people. Just because of their religion or their ethnicity, 11 million total people Hitler killed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is slamming his fist on the table going, this is evil, this is wrong. And he was this pastor This is the kind of pastor I want to be. This pastor is part of a group of inside people that have some influence, that can get close. He's part of a group that is trying to assassinate this man. Brent, it's wrong to kill somebody. Yes, but isn't it more right to save millions of lives by taking out one? The answer is yes. I want to be the pastor with a shank (laughs) in his pocket. Now the assassination attempt failed and he was hung. He's in prison where he wrote those letters. He was hung as a traitor. In reality, he died a martyr because he didn't fear man, he feared God. There is a time for peace. There is also a time for war, Solomon said. We cannot shrink back in the face of evil, regardless how strong they may appear. I'm telling you, if I've ever preached a sermon, this is it. Verse 22. What does Pharaoh do next? The silent genocide didn't work. So what does he do? Then Pharaoh commanded all, circle it, he commanded all his people. A public decree goes out. Hear ye, hear ye. The Pharaoh has made a new law. His new command to every Egyptian is to kill all male children of the Hebrew slaves. Kill them all. If you see one, throw him into the Nile River immediately. Silent genocide didn't work, so now overt genocide is the plan. And again, in Pharaoh's mind, isn't it funny how evil so many times is masked as wisdom? we got to control this foreign problems. So every Egyptian, I need you to help me. Throw them into the Nile. Now, here is... The great irony from chapter 1. Here's what I need you to see. Three different times in chapter 1. Pharaoh is trying to oppress the people of God who are flourishing by God's grace, by his design, by his plan. Listen to me. No man 
No angelic being, no demon in hell will ever be able to stop what God is doing in the world. I don't know what you'd give your life for, but there's no greater purpose in, the, in all the kingdoms of men than to fully spend ourselves submitting to Christ and the will of God because His will never fails. His word goes out and it always fills its purpose. It never comes back void. What God wants is happening whether people like it or not. Two times Pharaoh tries to kill the sons of God's people to wipe out the Hebrew people from the face of the earth. Here's the great irony. In just a few chapters, we're going to see it is Pharaoh weeping over the lifeless body of his son. It is the Egyptians who lose their sons in their effort to thwart God's will and oppress God's people while God's people walk out in freedom with their sons into a new land that God had promised them generations before. In Christ Jesus. On this side of the cross, God became flesh. He lived the perfect life we have not. He died in our place for our sins. He rose conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave. And he is coming again. And right now, who are, how are, Francis Schaeffer, how are we to live? In faith, God's always kept his promises He will always keep his promises. How then shall we live as strong, courageous men of God, women of God, men of prayer, women of prayer, men of faith, women of faith, that God is good and we can trust him even in the darkest times. Father in heaven, embolden your people. Do the work only you can do in our hearts and our minds. In Christ's name, through the power of your spirit, we pray. And every Christian said, amen.